I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. And if you're joining in for the first time, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us in these important conversations. And if you're returning, I want to thank you as well. Thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing so that others can join us in these courageous conversations. Now, when we started this two-part series, we imagined it a certain way. We had in our minds that we would think through this question, why can't we be unified? And it has unique relevance in the midst of this COVID-19 experience. But of course, this is the age-old question that begins in the very third chapter of Genesis and travels all the way through the present moment. But we begin to recognize that as we approach this second conversation, that some things had taken place that caused us to step back, to pray, to reimagine and prepare, to continue in the two-part theme on unity, but to approach it in a different way. What precipitated this specific shift is a video that surfaced of the murder of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old African-American man in Brunswick, Georgia. He was killed on February 23rd, 2020. Now, initially, according to the police incident report, which I have a copy of and which I've read carefully, and a letter from the DA's office, he was killed in a confrontation in which he had apparently perpetrated a crime. No charges were filed, but there was localized disbelief, shock, grief, frustration, and resistance to this outcome, but little awareness beyond Brunswick. On Wednesday of this week, a video surfaced of his killing that had been previously withheld. This video, like so many other cases that are all too common in their factors, immediately cast doubt on the original investigation, the incidents report, and the lack of legal recourse in regard to his killers. Following the release of the video, the reaction from national, state, and local leaders has been swift. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the governor of Georgia, and voices for justice from around the world have called for the immediate arrest of his killers. An investigation into the systemic breakdown of justice that allowed this to happen and to call into question again the inequities in the U.S. legal system that reflect the systemic racism in our local, regional, and national context. We live in a racialized society, and this is but the latest of high-profile experiences that is lived day in and day out by people of color. The mission of the Love First podcast is to catalyze courageous conversations that will revolutionize the way we love, the way we love God and experience God's love, and the way we love each other. So in the spirit of the mission of the Love First podcast, I'm going to light four candles. And the first 
is for Ahmad Arbery. I would like for you to say his name to yourself, Ahmad Arbery. And I want to take a moment of silence in remembrance of him as we begin this edition of the Love First podcast. I want to light a second candle, and this candle is for Ahmad Arbery's family, for his mother Wanda, say her name, Wanda, and his father Marcus, say his name to yourself. And I'm lighting this candle for them, for his family, but I'm also lighting this candle for everyone who lives and experiences solidarity with the systemic oppression and inequities in our society due to ethnicity and skin color. I want to light a third candle. This candle represents Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, who came to share in our experience, to suffer with the oppressed, the one who shines light on the evil that perpetrates these crimes systemically and personally, as well as the one who provides light for how to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Jesus is the one who offers a path forward through redemption, reconciliation, restoration, and renewal. But there is a fourth candle I want to light. And this candle represents me and others who, though we do not and do not pretend to understand this wound and injustice within our personal experience, we long to be connected and invested and engaged in the grief and the lament and the actions of justice that we are called to through God, our Creator, through the experience of our oneness of being human and the love that is illustrated through Christ Jesus. This candle is purposefully smaller than all the others to illustrate how I understand my voice in this conversation. I am white. I serve in a diverse church, but I am white. My wife and I have five children, four sons, one son who is black, but I am white. 
white. I listen to, I am mentored by, I am corrected by and transformed by sisters of color and brothers of color. But I am white. I know that my whiteness does not excuse me from this conversation, nor does it disqualify me from the conversation, but it does qualify my place in the conversation. I am white. So I've set some ground rules for myself in this conversation. First, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in the sight of God. Second, I'm not an expert. I don't have all the answers. In fact, I don't have answers. I know the one who does, but I am not confused that I have limitations. I'm just confused as to the extent of those limitations. So I want to clarify that. I know this is a risk. Anyone and any time that a person in white skin participates or facilitates in a conversation like this, there will always be mistakes made as well as the potential for harm. I've made a covenant with God and my family, my church, and my community that I seek to do no harm. But when I do, I want to be corrected so that I can better serve. Next, I will speak of truths that are hard to hear, hard to process, and sometimes hard to understand. Sometimes when we hear something, we have to walk away and prayerfully consider it. We have to do more study more research, more work, and look for voices that can help us. And when we speak of systemic issues, we are treading on identity issues, identity formation, and identity implication. This is very vulnerable place, and it can be upsetting. When I tread into these areas, I will try to share from my perspective what I believe to be true and verifiable, I will also give you some resources that I believe can help in expanding your own journey and your own understanding. So as we begin, I want to recognize on the front end that I am joining a conversation with a very specific set of limitations, but that does not mean that I have no place in this conversation, and I hope that that helps you understand that you also have a vital place in this conversation. Silence is not acceptable. So as we think about where we started last week, if you're joining us uh, today, I just want to give a little bit of a a reminder of what we covered in part one last week, because this is crucial for our conversation. 
When we think about why we can't be united, we often think about it like in, in just kind of personal terms, like we don't get along with someone, you know, we just didn't click, you know, what they like and we like is different, our politics are different, what kind of food we like is different, whether we like to go to the mountains for vacation or like to go to the beach, where we like the outdoors or the indoors, where we like to be around people or whether we just like to be by ourselves. We just kind of imagine it individually. Like somehow I don't get along with that person and that's why we're divided. But see, that may be true on, per, on a personal level, but the influence around us is always a systemic level. We must not pretend that every decision we make is simply an expression of our own personal moment or experience. Because we are living in, swimming in, influences that have been shaping us and continue to shape us. So, Scripture reveals one of the most profound influences on division and disunity in humanity, and that is rooted in this word, categories. Now, the background of this is important. In Matthew chapter 12, there's a story of Jesus in the Jewish synagogue, and he heals a man whose hand had been disabled. But there were onlookers who, rather than seeing that as like a great moment for the man and for humanity and, and for who Jesus is, they were looking for a way to trap him, and Scripture says that they were going to do this through accusation. But if you were reading that text in the original language of the New Testament, Greek, the word for accusation is kategoreo, or noun forms categoria or kategoros. And so when you look at the etymology, the history, the background, the evolution of our word category, it's rooted in that Greek term. So the way to remember it is this. This is categorization for accusation. Categorization for accusation. You see, Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong, so on what basis do you accuse him? Well, the only successful approach would be to categorize him as someone who would do something wrong. You know, he's the friend of tax gatherers and sinners. You know, he's, he must be a glutton and a drunkard. And so the idea isn't that you have to catch him in a crime. You just have to categorize him as someone who would do a crime. So then we saw this come up again in the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Now remember, we read verses uh, 1 through 11 John 8, 1 through 11, but in our first reading, we left out verse 6, because you can actually read the whole story, and it makes complete sense if you leave out verse 6. But the writer of the Gospel of John inserts verse 6 and says, pay attention to this. The reason they brought this woman before Jesus was so that they could trap him to have a means to accuse him. And there is our word, categoria, again. We see this come up finally when the gospel writers tell the story of Jesus' arrest, trial, and execution. 
that they bring accusations against him, categoria. And in fact, the governor Pilate, according to John's gospel, actually comes back to the accusers and says, do you got any evidence on this guy? Jesus himself says, if you've got something on me, go ahead and bring it before the court. I mean, I've done everything in public, so if you got something on me, bring it before the court. Pilate says, if you got something on this guy, bring it before the court. His accusers just completely play their hand with their response. If he were not a criminal, we would not have brought him before you. Now, notice what they've done. They've categorized him as a criminal, but they did it extrajudicially. They did it outside the court. So before they ever got to court, they said, this guy's a criminal. So now that we have him in court, when anybody says or doesn't say, the evidence or lack of evidence is immaterial. He's here because he's the criminal type, and that should shape how you view him. And it did. That ability to categorize him as the criminal type ended up swaying the court. And he was executed. Now bear in mind, Pilate goes on record as saying, I see no reason to execute him. I see no evidence. But Pilate also goes on record as saying, do with him what you want. So this is how categoria functions. It doesn't function off of fact or evidence. It functions off of the negative categorization for the purpose of accusation. Now, another profound biblical insight comes from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, where it's describing Satan, and Satan is described as the one who accuses God's people before God day in and day out. Night and day, he's accusing the people of God. But in Revelation 12, 10, Satan is called the category. That form of the word is used one time in the Bible, and it becomes a name for Satan. Satan is the category. Satan is the one who always initiates categorization for the purpose of accusation. So whenever we categorize other people in a negative way so as to suggest that they should be watched more closely, monitored differently, that we should be more suspicious about them, we are actually joining Satan in his work against the purposes of God. So that's part one. As we come into part two, one of the questions we might ask ourselves would be this. Instead of asking the question, why can't we be united we might just kind of throw up our hands and say, why can't we be divided? Why not just be divided? And if you've thought of that, you're not the first person that's thought of that. Countless people have thought of this, and I want to say this out loud, black and white. If you look back at the years preceding the Civil War, you look at the discussions during the Civil War, and even discussions that include Abraham Lincoln, 
The possibility of the separation of races, just divide people out, start this whole thing over again, was all on the table and was all argued from the highest office in the land. But if you talk with and listen carefully to many people of color in our country, especially people my age and older, many of them will say, integration wasn't as big of a win as you might think. Because for many of us, when our children were bused to schools where rather than them being in the majority and having teachers that looked like them and administrators that looked like them and lived in our community. They were now being bused to schools where they may have been one of a few people of color, where maybe one of a few teachers represented someone from their community. And many of them will say it was unbelievably traumatizing. So what's the argument? Shouldn't we be divided? Well, I want us to look at a couple of reasons why I don't believe that division will work. First of all, because it hasn't worked. It's actually never worked. In the famous Dred Scott decision of 1857, the Supreme Court decision, which yielded kind of this catchphrase, separate but equal, what everyone knew then and we still know now is it was never separate but equal. It was separate and unequal, and unequal in every way. Unequal in medical care, unequal in land ownership, unequal in business opportunity, unequal in economics, unequal in representation. It was always unequal, but that's not just a problem that's happened here in the United States of America. This idea of separate but equal has never worked because people always have the temptation to come out on top. We always want to identify ourselves as better. If you think of what fomented that led up to the genocide in Rwanda that started Easter weekend of 1994, it was this exact issue. Is we're not separate but equal. Someone has to come out on top. Someone has to be better. Someone has to win. This dips into identity formation. For many of us, our identity, to a great degree, is associated with our social context. So, uh, did we grow up in a, a middle-class neighborhood, a poor neighborhood, a, 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 the projects, or a wealthy neighborhood? Did we go to a private school or a public school? Did we go to a public school with a great reputation or a public school that was in tatters? Did we live in a city from which oftentimes people think that really smart people live there? Or did we live in a city where kind of there are a lot of negative descriptions of the city in which I grew up, right? The also the same thing can be true about family. What kind of family did I grow up in? So did I grow up in some kind of idyllic family where, you know, we had mom, dad, and the dog, and, and a nice house, and everything was kind of peaceful? Or did I grow up in chaos, the kind of family that's written about in, in uh, psycho psychological articles about dysfunction. So we associate ourselves with the social setting in which we grew up. We also associate ourselves with teams, 
political parties, churches, local organizations. So it is extremely vulnerable and distressing to us. For instance, what if I am an ardent follower of a sports team and I wear you know, their jerseys and I cheer for them publicly and I post about them on the internet and I get a license plate that, 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 that indicates that I follow them and then there is some horrific abuse within the system. What does that say about me, right? What if I'm a part of a church and I think everything's going along just fine and I think that the church's reputation is strong in the community and then suddenly something is uncovered of some horrific crime or abuse and now I ask myself, uh, what does that say about me? So what we often do is we think to ourselves, well, in order to protect me, I've got to protect the reputation that functions as an identifier for me. So if I'm a part of a particular political party and we have a big major blowout or someone really blows it or there's some kind of a a, a terrible outcome, maybe a great scandal then I've got to figure out how to say to people, well, that doesn't represent who we are. That's that's not really who we are. And what it's really saying is, that's not who I am. I don't see me that way. But rather than just saying, wow, I don't see me that way, but yes, I participate in a political party that has really blown it. It's just hard for people to say that because we identify ourselves within our social context. If someone says, ha ha, man, can you believe, you know, your coach got caught cheating or whatever, we take offense to that because we've identified so closely with the sports team that someone accusing, even accurately accusing the coach of cheating, feels like a personal affront. So you see, social identity has an incredible impact on personal identity. So one of the reasons that being divided never works is because we have this incessant temptation to have to come out on top, and that means that everyone I identify with has to be the best or at least better. A second reason that division doesn't work is that's never been God's plan. God did not create humanity in God's image for humanity to then live in opposition to God's image. God is perfect unity. And we, according to Genesis chapter 1, are created in that image. The Bible says when Adam and Eve were created, they were naked and unashamed. It means that everything about them was known and transparent, but there was no negative feeling. There was no sense of superiority. There was no one trying to get one over on another. No one was sitting back thinking, somehow I've got to be better than that other person. And no one else was thinking, I should be ashamed or I should hide. It was only after the Kattegor entered the garden and accused God of holding out on humanity. 
Now, had God held out on humanity? No. But remember, categorization for the sake of accusation doesn't require evidence, and lies thrive in categorization. And so division started then. It's never been God's desire. And in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible tells us that on the cross, literally in the epicenter of the gospel impact of the world, that in Jesus' body, he created one new humanity He put away all the hostility. He put away all the barriers and dividing walls and brought us together in Christ. So to divide would be the opposite of God's will for humanity. And finally, to divide suggests that we're better apart rather than better together. Think about COVID-19 and the drive for successful treatment of those who are infected and a vaccine for the future. How many of us would think, oh, hey, the smart thing to do would be for every government to act on its own. Don't share any information with anyone else. Every lab, be secretive about your developments. Every pharma company, be secretive about your developments. Everybody go for your own. uh, uh, Make sure that you get the fame, you get the money, you get the outcome. Even if people have to die in the process, all of us would say resoundingly, Absolutely not. We want to see a unified effort around the globe to face this and defeat it. You see, when you look over the course of history, the greatest outcomes have often come from the unifying of a variety of different perspectives. So division fundamentally won't work. But now... How does God offer a new vision? This is what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Just as a body, like a human body, though one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So now if a foot should say, "Ah, because I'm not a hand, I, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if an ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, well, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But you see, in fact, God placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? You see, as it is, there are many parts but one body. So the first part of this, he says, now think about it. If insecurity starts to drive us, we might think to ourselves, I'm just not as important as other parts of the body. But now what Paul's going to do is going to flip the script. Listen to this next description. The eye cannot say to the hand, 
I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we actually treat them with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body. Did you see that? God put the body together so that there should be no division in it. Now watch this. But so that its parts could have equal concern for each other. Are you hearing this vision of God? If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, do you hear that vision? We're meant to be a body, one body with many parts. And so Paul begins to describe God's vision this way. He says, if you're feeling insecure about your place, like because you're this or that, you don't belong as much. No, it's the exact opposite. He said, but let's flip the script and suggest that if pride got a hold of you, like I'm more important than some other part of the body, you got it all wrong. He says, here's the way you got to think about it. The parts that we think are less presentable are actually given greater honor. Those that lacked honor, God says, give them more honor. Those who are already presentable, they don't need any special treatment. Read it for yourself. That's exactly the vision of God. That's what scripture says. So the Bible says, oh no, categoria is not God's way. Categorization for the sake of accusation is the opposite of God's desire. God's vision is one body. And that body gives honor and shares equal concern for all. So you see, if one family in Brunswick, Georgia suffers, we all suffer with that family. Now, so how does systemic racism function as a way of understanding how Satan is at work in this situation? So I'm white. So I want to walk through some important uh, wording that can help us understand how this functions. So one of the things that really is a big struggle for people that are wrapped in my color is what we would call white fragility, right? The inability to stay in a conversation where the impact of whiteness is being expressed in negative terms. So some people will say, well, I, I know lots of people that are fragile and it doesn't know a skin color. Okay, so let's stop the conversation and let's identify something. There is a difference between personal struggle and systemic struggle. Not every person who is wrapped in a particular color has the exact same temperament, social makeup, 
uh, doesn't have the exact same emotional resiliency, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about systems that are at work. So white fragility talks about how I, as a white person, respond when someone suggests that the impact of white culture is felt in a negative, horrific way in black communities, then white fragility would say that rather than me listening and thinking, I need to know more about that, I would lose myself in the frailty of my identity and think, I've got to defend whiteness in order to feel good about me. So I want you to think about white fragility in that way. Think about it systemically. I do not have to defend whiteness in order to be solid in my own identity as a person. And I also don't have to disengage from a conversation that is implicating white culture in disastrous outcomes, I don't have to recuse myself from that conversation in order to be who I am. So white fragility is step one. The second thing is white privilege. Now, I want to talk about that, especially from a guy my age, okay? Growing up in this country, the idea of being privileged is anathema. This country is rooted in a belief that we earn what we get, that we work hard. It's rooted in the belief that the sacrifices that our foremothers and our forefathers made counted. Many of us can look back in just a generation or two and look at the poverty that our parents grew up in, or that our grandparents grew up in, certainly our great-grandparents grew up in, the enormous struggle and how their health care was insufficient, their economics were insufficient, their educational opportunities were insufficient. And so when we look at that, we think, white privilege? I don't know what in the world you're talking about because I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Okay, so first of all, I want to say that it actually doesn't have anything to do with that. That's what I want to say first. That yes, absolutely, struggle doesn't know a skin color. People all over the world are struggling today. And they are wrapped in a variety of hues of skin color. So it really doesn't have anything to do with that. What white privilege has to do with is a system that elevated and gave access and opportunity to people that are wrapped in my color. Now, if you want to know, well, Don, make it simpler. What is white privilege? Okay, I, I am white privilege. You're looking at it. I'm white privilege. You're like, uh, I thought your parents both grew up on par- farms, poor, no power, no running water. They did. I thought your dad was a ditch digger. He was. It doesn't have anything to do with that. But you see, what it has to do with is, never one time in my life was I ever excluded from an opportunity to apply for a job, apply for a school, 
apply for an opportunity, whether I got the job or got accepted in the school or not. I was never stopped from applying due to the color of my skin. Now, here's a way to think about it. Uh, For someone my age growing up, uh, what marked my childhood and my early teen years was the Vietnam War. And one of the worst experiences in the history of this country is how we treated returning soldiers from the Vietnam War. It was horrific, and it's not in the history books for me. I remember it, and I remember that dark period in the history of this country. And one of the things we vowed to do was to repent of that and never do it again. That whether you agree with the war or not, the people that you sent to serve in that war, many of them drafted, you don't ever treat them with disdain for the decisions of those who sent them or the outcome of the war. It has been a profound national repentance that I've observed over the last 45 years. I can come up the escalator at our airport, and when I get to the top, you will see volunteers at the USO stand showing soldiers where to go for rest, for provision. You will hear every few minutes over the loudspeaker, the mayor of our city, thanking them for their service or encouraging them as they go off to be deployed. We have had experienced a national repentance in how we treat our soldiers. And I think you would agree that that was right. But now I want to back up in time. I want to back you up to 1962. Because you see, a nine-year veteran in the U.S. military who served in combat in Korea, who was in the U.S. Air Force, and after nine years went home and went to school at a, at a two-year school, got perfect grades, came out of that school and apply, applied to the state university in his home state and was rejected. Nine-year veteran, combat duty, perfect grades in his preparation to enter that four-year state institution was rejected. And he was rejected because of his skin color. And he appealed to the commander-in-chief, the president, who deployed thousands of his comrades-in-arms to protect him and make it possible for him to go to Ole Miss. We're talking about James Meredith. That's what we're talking about with white privilege. You see, any white student that had the grades and the money could apply to Ole Miss, whether they got in or not. But a black, nine-year veteran of the military, combat duty, perfect grades, who had the financing, could not get in because of skin color. You see, white privilege is about an access that our society supports. So here's something that's very important. White privilege functions all on its own. You don't have to stoke the fire. It functions while we're asleep. I think I knew a little bit about it in my head, but when I begin to watch the way our white children were treated and the way that our black son was treated in every aspect of society. I didn't understand it from personal experience, but it was crystal clear what was happening. From the traffic stops, 
that were all about race. From teachers, to people in stores, to business opportunities, I saw white privilege functioning. I'm white privilege. So that leads into one more, white supremacy. What is this? Well, this goes back to our earlier discussion, why we can't divide. Because dividing leads us to believe, well, we're better, that we are supreme, that we should be in charge, that we should be the ones policing other people's actions, that we should be monitoring bodies that are not wrapped in the same color as ours. And when you create that kind of categorization, it allows for the kind of unsubstantiated accusation that led to the murder of Ahmad Arbery. You see, when I went online and I got the incident report, and I noticed that there were at least 13 officers on the scene, that the only witness in the incident report was one of the killers, and that the way they described it turns out to be not the way it happened. So how do you see a person running down the street, decide that you can grab a shotgun and a 357, get in your truck and begin to chase this person down and believe that not only is that within your rights, but to also believe that apparently you're imagining an armed conflict and though you are not a member of law enforcement, you believe that you could act extrajudicially, that you could act apart from the law, and that if you did act apart from the law and it carried out to its horrific conclusion, which it did again, that you would be free from prosecution. There is a system that created that expectation. And that system is what's spelled out in these other terms, these terms I've highlighted, white supremacy, white privilege, and then the white fragility that makes it hard for someone wrapped in my color to accept that that's actually what happened. So we begin to think through it in other ways. We want to suggest, well, uh, he, he probably was doing something wrong. What I would ask you to do is I would ask you to watch a Facebook Live video that was produced by an amazing partner in ministry, Latasha Morrison. Look her up, be the bridge. She is a fantastic voice to help us understand what's happening. But one of the things that she says is, it is the, the norm in cases like this to try to find something in the victim's past to suggest that they deserve this outcome. Not only is that wrong, but we almost never look at the perpetrator's past to suggest that there's something there as well. She asked this question, how would you like your past to be put on blast. 
Would someone just look at something in your teen years or your past and think, you know what? You deserve for me to get my weapons, get in a vehicle, go down the street, cut you off, initiate a confrontation, and then take your life or your child or someone you love. That's not the world we want to live in, is it? But you see, when we are allowing these kinds of things to continue and not stepping forward and taking a voice and a stand against these injustices, it will continue. So sometimes people say, Don, you got to quit talking about stuff like this. The, the real concern of the body of Christ is, is, is just um, to make, is, is to share the gospel. You could not be more right. You are 100% correct. But what I would challenge you to think about is don't limit Jesus's gospel to your interpretation. Jesus's gospel isn't just about how people can be saved from their sin and offered a home in heaven eternally. Jesus's gospel restores God's world that was taken by Satan in the garden when Satan used categorization to accuse God's self. And God is restoring and God is not going to stand for Satan taking his beloved creation. So in Christ, creation is being restored. In Christ, humanity is being made one. The gospel absolutely is the message of us being reconciled to God. But God himself says that the gospel is a reconciling of us to each other. In Galatians chapter 2, there is a story of a beloved person in Scripture that we can often relate to, the Apostle Peter. And I think one of the reasons we love Peter is he gets things right and he gets things wrong and he never quits and he never stops loving God and he just keeps trying. And I think that's why we can relate to him. But his understanding of these teachings was, was difficult. He had some great victories and he had some real mess-ups. And in Galatians 2, it shares one of the mess-ups. He's uh, at what we might call a church potluck. And he's eating with people that are Gentiles. And he's Jewish. And he knows in his head, he knows the truth about that. But it hasn't sunk down deep enough in his heart for him to hold sturdy when he was tested and a group of people showed up that he knew would not approve of him eating with those kind of people. And Peter gets up from the table and backs away, and he's so influential that even Barnabas gets drawn away in this hypocrisy. So the apostle Paul steps up, and he confronts him, and you got to listen carefully to the exact wording Paul uses. Paul says, When I saw that Peter was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I confronted him. What is the truth of the gospel that Peter had somehow abandoned? 
He still believed that people could be saved through Christ Jesus. He still believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. He still believed that people were sinners and that through Christ they could be forgiven and that they could go to heaven. Peter still believed all of that. So what was the truth of the gospel that Peter abandoned? The truth of the gospel that Peter abandoned was that God was not just reconciling people to himself, but reconciling them to each other. That on the cross... Jesus was mending humanity, and that's what we want to be a part of. And if we're going to participate in the mending of humanity, that is participation in the gospel. And what the the world needs to see is the church still believes that what God requires of us is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So what are a few things that we can do? First of all, we can listen. We can listen. No matter which of these candles we represent, we can listen well. Number two, we can grieve and we can lament. This isn't well practiced in the country I grew up in, but we can learn it and we can grow into it. Number three, don't defend white culture. We don't have to defend society in order to be okay with our own identity. We don't have to be frail or fragile. We can listen with genuine empathy and genuine concern. Don't say to people, as Latasha Morrison encouraged us to do, Don't say to people, well, let's just wait and see how the facts play out. Latasha gave this important admonition. Try to imagine maybe a situation in which the roles were reversed, that maybe two black men, a father and son, had gone into the house and got weapons and got into a truck and then traveled down the road following a 25-year-old white male jogging who had been observed committing no crime and confronted him and then shot him. And and she said, just try to imagine how differently that would play out so that we can start allowing ourselves to see through the fog and into an experience that is different than our own and appreciate it. And then finally, act as a person who wants to be just who desires to be just. So that means I might have to read more, study more, research more. I might have to read books that are unsettling to me, listen and start following podcasts that are unsettling to me. Tap into some resources that tell a story that, of, of America that I'm not as familiar with. I would encourage you to tap into Latasha Morrison and Be the Bridge. I would encourage you to read writers, depending on how deep you're ready to go into this, I'd encourage you to read Robin DiAngelo, White Fragility. I'd encourage you to read Ibram Kendi, Stamped from the Beginning, or How to Be an Anti-Racist. I would encourage you to reach out to people and just ask, what are the resources that you would say that a person wrapped in my color could really benefit from? and start investing in those opportunities. You see, here at Love First, what we want more than anything else 
is to catalyze courageous conversations that lead to our transformation so that we love in a revolutionary way. I want you to know that I love you. And I know this is a hard conversation, but I also know that we're up to the challenge by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the example of Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me today. Love first, I know.